Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. You know, according to the church calendar, uh, which we also call the, the seasons of the church year, we're now in the season of Epiphany, which began on January 6th. And Epiphany is a, a very old celebration. It dates all the way back to the mid-fourth century, so the celebration of Epiphany is 1,600 years old. Originally, Epiphany actually included Christmas. Jesus' birth was celebrated within the season of Epiphany, and of course, sometime later, that date was moved over to December 25th, which we have now. But in other parts of the world today, outside of the West, especially outside of the United States, Christians celebrate Epiphany uh, in one way, by enjoying a lot of sweet pastries and treats. Now, if we were to start doing that here, we could find all kinds of religious justifications for letting our holiday binging continue until mid-February. But I would not recommend it, even though I ate three Christmas cookies last night. Well, the Bible offers no shortage of epiphanies, no shortage of revelations, of things being made known. People all the time in Scripture are, are seeing something revealed to them by God, things that cause them to, to marvel and to wonder. For example, in Genesis, the ancient patriarch Jacob has this dream about angels ascending and descending up and down a, a kind of a, a ladder or a ramp that extends from heaven to earth. And he wakes up and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. It was an epiphany. Or, or John the baptizer, he, he sees Jesus and he tells his followers, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's, it's a revelation. And today we hear Nathaniel in our gospel reading who starts off just a little bit snarky with his comment about anything good coming from Nazareth. But then he says to Jesus, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's, it's actually a prophetic declaration that reveals something very important. Well, the author of the great New Testament message, the sermon, the letter that, that we call Hebrews, joins right in with this season of epiphany by helping us to come to grips with the revealing of Jesus, the one who fully shared our humanity in such a way that we come to understand new things about the very character of God. One of the most startling things about the gospel story, and, and in particular, how that story is interpreted in Hebrews, is that God is no longer seen as only transcendent. That is, only just above and beyond us, uh, even while being with us or being for us, but now as one who in the real life person of Jesus becomes one of us. That in Jesus, God experiences the full extent of human experience, conception, and birth and life and suffering and ultimately death. Without all of those aspects of human existence, God's identification with us would be limited at best 
and a farce at worst. Now, this was a really big deal for the first Christians, the, the early church, just as it continues to be a big deal for us. Back then, there were these false teachers who taught that, that there were these two realms of existence. There was the, the material realm and the spiritual realm. And the material realm, they said, was, was subject to corruption and decay and death. That's what happens to all material things. And because of that corruptive nature, the things in the material realm were in, inherently evil. But the spiritual realm was good and eternal. It was free of decay and death. And so God, who is spirit, God who inhabits the, the spiritual realm, could never inhabit a human body, which was material and corrupt and inherently evil. And so they, they reasoned that this whole thing, especially Jesus' death on the cross, that, that had to be a kind of heavenly illusion with Jesus as some sort of like a divine hologram who appeared as nothing more than an, an instructional tool for everybody. Well, the New Testament writers at large denounced that teaching. And the author of Hebrews joins in by showing how in experiencing the fullness of human existence and death, Jesus has done some amazing and important things for the entire world. But we're told in this text that Jesus doesn't start with the entire world in general. He starts with the descendants of Abraham in particular. In other words, he starts with the people of God. Now, this continues a very important biblical theme that starts in Genesis chapter 12, where God tells Abram, who will later be renamed Abraham, that his descendants will be a great nation. And through them, all the families of the earth will find blessing. This was the calling and the vocation of Israel. And so God starts with a particular people with the purpose of blessing and reconciling the whole world to himself. And so Jesus comes to that body of people as one of them, as a family member, one who shares their flesh and blood. And in doing so, he frees them from the slavery of fear, especially the fear of death, and releases them into the identity that God has intended for them. And because Jesus shares their humanity and not just their ethnicity, he's come for the whole world. You know, I've been thinking this week a lot about this part of the text in particular. It's, it's kind of curious that we're not told that Jesus rescued people from hell or from evil or even from sin, although we will hear some of that a bit later in the book. Right now we're told that Jesus has rescued the descendants of Abraham from the fear of death. Now, I get that the suggestion that human beings fear death is not exactly new information, right? Now, I must say that the older I get, I don't fear death as much as I fear what I might have to go through to get there. And nevertheless, death is not something people usually look forward to. Some find themselves constantly looking over their shoulders to see if the Grim Reaper is just sneaking up on them. So 
why did the original audience of Hebrews need to hear this? Well, certainly the ancient Israelites had experienced a great deal of violence and bloodshed in their history. When, when foreign invaders took over and sent people into exile, it usually involved some loss of life. But these folks, the, the audience, the first audience for Hebrews, they had something else to be concerned about, and that was death as a result of persecution. Now, later on in the book, we're going to learn that, that persecution so far for them had not included the shedding of blood, but the people would certainly have heard stories of others being persecuted to the point of suffering and death. So it wouldn't be a far leap to expect that death might be on the horizon for them as well. But we're told that the destruction of evil and the freedom from the fear of death came about because Jesus died. Now, what can that mean? I mean, if that's all it took, if it just took Jesus to up and die, then Jesus could have died minutes after he was born and accomplished the same purpose. Uh, if all that was needed was a death, then the death could show up just about any time. But Jesus' death was certainly more than just some kind of a cosmic transaction where Jesus dying was a, a trade-off for the fear of death itself. Jesus' death was preceded by his life. He experienced the love of family and friends. He, he, he worked and he played. He experienced joy and sorrow. Jesus shared our flesh and blood in a real human life that ended as all human lives do, in suffering and death. This Jesus, who is the exact representation of God's nature, this Jesus who shows us the face of God, embraced the fullness of all human experience. And the same Jesus who came out the other side of death and is now at the right hand of God shows us that death cannot have the last word. And that is how the power of evil, sin, and death is broken. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, takes it all into himself, and he breaks it. And this is really good news. This gives us a story worth living. And now, Jesus is being characterized as our high priest which is going to be fleshed out more in detail later. The high priest who is one of us, and yet at the same time represents God to us as the very imprint, the character of God himself. This son, this high priest, this one who shares our flesh and blood, was faithful from beginning to end. And we are being called, along with the ancient audience of the book of Hebrews, to remain confident and hopeful in Jesus' faithfulness. But right after telling his listeners to remain confident and hopeful, the, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95, and he warns the people, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now the psalm is referring to how the ancient Israelites, having been rescued from their enslavement in Egypt so many years ago, got kind of fussy and grumpy with Moses and started pushing against what God was leading them to. And now we hear a new audience being told the same thing. 
And why? Probably because they were hardening their hearts. You know, I know something about this, don't you? There are people in the world, especially super high profile ones who get a lot of news coverage, who upset me so much that they could do something noble and ethical and kind, and I would suspect that they really had nefarious motivations. I mean, they might have done something that seems to be good, but clearly behind the scenes, they're probably up to no good. My heart can get so calloused that I just won't give those people a break, even when they deserve one. So I get this whole hardness of heart thing. And maybe in some way you do too. But there are also other ways that a human heart gets hard. Besides that of sheer honoriness, it gets hard out of apathy. It gets hard when people just quit caring. We can see this later on in Hebrews when the people are admonished not to neglect meeting together for worship, as some folks had apparently done. That neglect could have been from being led away by the false teachers or because people were mad at somebody, but it may also have been because of apathy. Perhaps they just quit caring. They could have just left it all behind, and in doing so, their hearts were hardened. It's sort of like slicing off a piece of bread from a freshly baked loaf and then just leaving it on the kitchen counter because you lost interest in eating it. It just gets stale and hard and unappetizing. You know, I don't know what's worse, a hard heart or a stale heart. Either way, it's a bad deal. You know, hearts can also get hardened by denial. Some of the false teachers who influenced some of the early Christians denied that Jesus was real, that he really died, that God had really shared human life. Denial of what is real and true can harden a human heart. You know, we've got a bunch of denial going on in our country right now, really. Um, following the events in Washington, D.C. over a year ago, for example, people started saying things like, this is not who we are, and, and we're better than this. Now, th those are very wishful, hopeful statements, and I'm really glad that people want that to be the case. I certainly want that to be the case. But those claims are not really true. We can look at all kinds of things that have happened over the years. And, and if we're looking at what is real, we have to say that as a body of people, this really is who we are. And we're not really better than this. Because our faults and our failures are part of who we are as a people in our country. Now, to be clear, I, I don't say this so that we condemn ourselves or condemn our country, not in any way, but rather so that we help ourselves and help others to avoid denial. Otherwise, we leave no space for confession and repentance, and we risk the hardening of our hearts. You know, we practice confession each week toward the end of our service, as we will do today. And we use different ways of, of expressing our shared confession, but in essence, what we're doing is speaking the truth about ourselves to God. 
And in doing that, we, we recognize our failures, we recognize our weaknesses and our sins, and we come to God in truth and repentance, confident of his grace and forgiveness. But what if we confessed our sins and then rather than ask for forgiveness, we just said, but really, we're better than that. It's not really who we are. Wouldn't be much of a confession, would it? And it would deny the truth about God and our need for his grace and mercy. It would be a good way for us to harden our hearts against what is real. The author of Hebrews warns his readers about the kind of hardness of heart that came about in the rebellion. When the ancient Israelites rebelled against Moses during their time in the wilderness, they were actually rebelling against God. Having become weary of trusting the God who rescued them from enslavement, they actually longed to return to their captivity, where at least they knew what to expect day to day. And now, people are being admonished to avoid repeating that tragic experience. But they're also told something profound and liberating, that Jesus, who shared human existence and experience, was tested as he suffered. And because of that testing, he's able to help those who are being tested. Now, it's likely that the reference is to those who have suffered some persecution. But it would also include those who have been drawn away by false teachings, for those who have just given up, and those who have fallen into the desperate black hole that is the fear of death. In other words, in the midst of our testing, Jesus gets us. Jesus understands what it means to be tested. Jesus was tested and came out the other side as a faithful son. And he comes to us now as a faithful brother. You know, to one degree or another, we're all being tested. We're being tested like, like the way trees are tested by the, by the force of the wind. We're struggling to keep things together at work and at home. We're, we're struggling to keep our, our marriages and our families intact. We're struggling with our health. We're struggling with staying connected with our worship community. We're struggling to make sense of what's happening in our nation. And in our struggles, we're being tested. And like trees, we're, we're wondering if our roots will hold as the winds howl all around us. But because Jesus has shared our flesh and blood, he shared our life, our suffering, and our death. He gets us. He knows what it means to struggle, to be tested. And so he knows that we human beings suffer, and he knows what we suffer. And he knows how we suffer right now. The author of Hebrews rightly points us to Jesus in the midst of our suffering, and he calls us to something rather undramatic and unspectacular, to hold firm. Some translations say to hold fast. 
to hang on to confidence and hope. The Greek word in the ancient New Testament that we translate in English as hold firm or hold fast conjures up the image of a ship that is being impacted by winds and currents and even storms. But, but the sailors, they, they work the sails and they work the rudder in order to keep the ship on course to help it hold firm toward its destination. And so we're called to do that, to hold firm, to hold fast, to hang in there because in Jesus, we have confidence and we can even boast not in ourselves, but in the hope that he gives right in the midst of our human condition. And so we can come to Jesus today with the truth about ourselves. We can come and we can lay down our fears, including the fear of death, right at his feet, because he has already broken the power of that fear. And we come because Jesus has gone before us and he gets us. In our gospel reading, Jesus told Nathanael that he would one day see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending right on him, right on Jesus, echoing the experience of the ancient patriarch Jacob. Jesus himself is the place where the Lord is whether either Jacob or Nathaniel knew it at the time. And Jesus is in this place with us right now, the place of our real lives. And we are invited to know it. As I said earlier, we practice confession every week. <clears throat> and uh, we see it as a practice of truth-telling where we speak the truth about ourselves to God the best we know how, knowing full well that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And so we're not surprising him with any of this, but we come to be truth tellers, not to live in denial, not to say that we're better than we really are, but to be truthful. And we come to God in confidence as we speak these words of confession together. Saving God, we are your people, yet the world cannot see this. We are your children and fail to live in peace. We are your voices and choose to be silent. We are your hands and feet and walk a different road. Forgive us for ignoring your love, for brushing aside your hand and trusting our own wisdom. Enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth, to bring to you our joyful songs in the everyday moments of our lives, that your name might be glorified through our words and lives. Amen. And now, may the Lord enrich us with his grace and nourish us with his blessing. The Lord defend us from trouble and keep us from all evil. The Lord receives our prayers and absolves us from our offenses for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.